what I surmise from that, or what the public might surmise from that, is that you know whether you're towards the left of politics or whether you're towards the right of politics, you've got politicians of both flavours going to these events and acknowledging that climate change is a major problem and that we need to do something about it. That was Dr Simon Cook from Dundee University on the lessons of climate change commitments as global leaders call time on the latest world conference in Egypt. Hello and welcome to the Stushi, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip and on this episode I'll be joined by Justin Bowie, Rachel Amory, Callum Ross and Adele Merson to chew over the latest excitement across the country. It's been a, a bit of a bumper guest list, actually, because there's there's a lot going on. We'll also hear from Scottish Lib Dem leader Alex Cole-Hamilton on some surprising recycled green energy claims, which appear to have become established fact in error. More on all of that later. And coming up in the show, we'll get to grips with the long-running inquiry on the Scottish child abuse inquiry and discuss refugees and the growing pressure to find the cash just to deal with the basics for people who are seeking safety here. We meet for the latest stushy at the end of COP27, the get-together for political leaders, including our Prime and First Ministers, who were in Egypt. And um, frankly, I can't believe a year has already gone by since the great, good and not-so-good were in Glasgow for COP26. With that in mind, Justin Bowie caught up with Dr Simon Cook, who is a senior lecturer in environmental sciences at the University of Dundee. He started by asking if last year's meeting made enough gains. I mean, I think before COP26, it was it was being billed as the make or break meeting on climate change. And um, we didn't make it. So it kind of leaves a few sort of uh, uncertainties. So I think there were a number of key achievements. I, I suppose that the most famous ones are firstly phasing down uh, the use of coal. Um, and there was there was widespread disappointment. Some of your listeners might remember Alok Sharma sort of breaking down in tears at the end of the, the meeting because uh, it was a last minute change from phasing out of coal, which means, you know, we want to get rid of combusting coal to phasing down, which is, you know, is less ambitious. And it means that we're going to continue to emit carbon emissions from burning coal. Uh, the second thing was about reducing deforestation and you know, what you have to remember is that um, you know forests are a, an important carbon sink. So all the time that we're we're burning fossil fuels, we need something to absorb that carbon, and forests do a great job of that. Um, so if we're losing forests, we're losing that big sink of carbon. Now on reducing deforestation, I think most countries signed up to that, and I think the the, the trends have been that forest or deforestation, forest destruction has been slowing but it's not been slowing fast enough. Um, I guess there are sort of a few potential hopes. Uh, I think perhaps the most obvious one would be the the recent election of President Lula in Brazil, um, who perhaps perhaps has a better track record in his previous presidency than um, the the most recent President Bolsonaro in terms of uh, reducing uh, or or at least having less deforestation in in Brazil, of, of the Amazon rainforest in this case. Third main thing really was was around reducing methane emissions. Again, most countries signed up to that, um, but we're still seeing increases of of methane in the atmosphere. Fourth thing would have been payments for developing countries affected by floods and typhoons and these sort of climate-related disasters. 
Um, I think the the headline there is that you know we've been increasing. You know, the developed world's been increasing the, the amount of money that's been giving to developing countries each year, um, but it's still not enough. We're, we're falling short on that. And perhaps the one that sort of leads from COP26 to COP27 is that um, you know countries rather sort of dodged the bullet last time at, at COP26 in in meet, trying to make ambitious targets for, for uh, cutting carbon emissions. And the, the plan then was to come back to COP27 in Egypt with some sort of uh, sort of deeper cuts in in uh, you know more more aggressive cuts in carbon emissions, um, but you know I, I think at the moment there's there's no those sorts of plans are disappointing and um, don't really go as deep as they as they need to. And at the moment we're there's no currently credible carbon emissions reduction plan that would see us meeting the Paris climate target of, of you know keeping warming to one and a half degrees c above industrial levels so we're probably averted we're probably going to avert the very very worst that would be sort of four or five degrees c of global warming but at the moment we're on we're on track for about two 2.5 degrees c of warming which would be extremely challenging and very dangerous so i think you know in answer in direct answer to your question um there were a number of key points progress made at COP26, but nowhere near enough. Also looking one year on, do you think that whatever progress has been made was perhaps undermined by the ongoing kind of energy crisis in Europe? We've seen countries looking at moving back to oil and gas. We've seen kind of an increased dependency even in coal in some countries. So do you think that the ongoing energy crisis has made things more difficult? Um, it has. Um, I mean, for starters, you know, I'll come back to, to your point there. I mean, for starters, just international cooperation. Um, so before COP26, you know, China and the US released a communique about their plans to reduce carbon together and, and as, as the two biggest economies, the two biggest emitters of carbon to show some leadership to the rest of the world. And of course, in the year since, we've had ten, you know, rising tensions over Taiwan um, and, you know, some... I suppose, uncertainty about what's going on in, in Ukraine in terms of China's position, certainly the US backing uh, Ukraine. Um, and and that has, so that kind of international cooperation and diplomacy is probably, has been more challenging this year at COP27. Um, and, and as you say, the, the energy crisis is, you know, often this kind of put in an opposing camp to the to the climate crisis so we kind of think well we need to keep the lights on we need to but we need to urgently replace all of that russian gas and uh find find alternatives to that uh, and continue burning fossil fuels to kind of remain retain the status quo um i mean just i think it was just yesterday you know uk and germany were looking at, at trying to cooperate on uh, imports of uh, liquefied natural gas um, because the UK has a big coastline, lots of lots of ter- ports and terminals that could could take those imports of, of gas. Um, but you know, my my worry is that we're kind of we're kind of kicking climate change into the long grass by doing this. Um, so we're kind of getting these quick fixes by importing more liquefied natural gas. But um, you know, ultimately, that's just going to contribute to to the climate crisis, and it's going to make you know, bigger problems for ourselves uh, down the line. So, and really, 
although these two things, energy security and climate security, as I say, often seen as two different things, that they're really part of the same coin. You know, if we were to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels, um, we, you know, to be more energy secure, perhaps move towards renewables, um, we would we would then not have to be importing uh, Russian gas and oil. We, actually, the UK doesn't didn't actually import very much anyway, but you know Europe as a whole, um, and we would reduce our carbon emissions as well. And we so really these two things are part of the same coin, two sides of the same coin. But we um, it's often presented as well. We need to keep the lights on, so we've got to burn more fossil fuels. And my worry is that by investing more in infrastructure for liquefied natural gas, for example we're kind of setting ourselves up for a longer term of burning these these fossil fuels rather than investing that same money in renewables, which would ultimately increase our energy security and reduce our carbon emissions. One of the major talking points surrounding COP has been the fact that Rishi Sunak initially didn't plan to go and then eventually did. Meanwhile, in Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon has been criticised by some of our rivals in Hollywood for attending. Do you think there's value in these big-name politicians jetting across the globe to COP, or do you think that a lot of it's for show and doesn't actually help a lot? Well, at the end of the day, uh, as a scientist, um, I guess I'm pragmatic about this. So I kind, you know, it's easy to be cynical about politicians. They have a lot of, uh, they've got their own careers to think about. They've got um, voters, votes that they want to win. They want to be seen to be doing the right thing for, for their constituencies and so on and so forth. But I kind of don't mind <laughs> whether whether they go to COP27 and take lots of selfies or whether they're there to, um, to you know, not to be upstaged by their nearest rival or, or whatever else. I kind of, to me, it's, it's a good thing that they both went. And so I'm talking about Nicola Sturgeon and Rishi Sunak here in particular. Um, and I think it, you know, from, from my perspective, you know, that they're coming from very different ends of the political spectrum. And what I surmise from that, or what the public might surmise from that, is that, you know, whether you're towards the left of politics or whether you're towards the right of politics, you've got both politicians of both uh, both flavours going to these events and acknowledging that climate change is a major problem and that we need to do something about it. Um, the rest, to me, as a scientist, you know, who's very concerned about uh, carbon emissions and climate change, the rest of it is is all kind of noise. Um, so, I'm, you know, I'm as cynical as the next person when it comes to politicians, but um, they're there, they are delivering a message um, from different ends of the political spectrum and... I hope that the public take that message on board. But ultimately, it will be actions rather than than words uh, from politicians that, that really matter. We need policies. We need leadership on climate change um, to, to really make a difference. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask sort of along similar lines. One of the main criticisms of events like COP from an environmental perspective or from the other perspective is... The fact that you have lots of people travelling across the globe and aeroplanes putting out emissions into the environment. Does that aspect of an event like COP concern you or do you think it's just kind of a necessary part of it to get everyone together? Yeah, it's definitely uncomfortable. But I mean, I have to say, you know, as a scientist, for you know, I, I travel around the world. You know, I have to go some places. So my, my trade is, is a glacier scientist. So there are no glaciers in Scotland. So I have to travel elsewhere to study them. 
and that typically involves taking flights. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I certainly cannot um, be too critical. I don't think it's certainly uncomfortable, and um, you know that you know people having to to take uh, to take flights. You know, perhaps if it were in a, I don't know, maybe a, a European city, it might be easier to get to. You know, in, in for some people to to get to by train. You know, from Scotland, for example. But I think it's also significant that it's in it's in an African nation. Africa is going to be among the the continents that is going to be most significantly affected by climate change. So I wouldn't want to to you know for people to be prevented to going to to COP twenty seven in Sharm El Sheikh um, just because of uh, just because of that. It is uncomfortable, but I hope that the the good that comes out of these meetings uh, ultimately will outweigh the carbon emissions involved in 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 people you know delegates uh, traveling to these locations and i'm i know because i know some of the people who go to these events i know that some of these people will do all they can to avoid um flying to to reduce their own carbon footprints and i'm sure that many of the delegates will be will be uh, aware of that and as a final question, do you have hope going forward that events like these and kind of wider discussions on climate change can drive change for the better? Or do, do you worry that we're, things are just going to get worse and worse? I, I think, you know, humans, generally speaking, including myself, are, it's, it's hard not to be hopeful. You know, it's, it's difficult to spend your life with not having hope. I am hopeful that these kinds of events do lead to to some change and, and some positive change. And, you know, every degree of warming we can avoid um, will save millions and millions and millions of lives. And um, so I, I really am, you know, keen that these kinds of events continue. I know I know some people are very, very critical of, of, of COP uh, and see it as, as a talking shop or, or a waste of time. Um, that if something really positive doesn't come out of COP27 this year, that it kind of questions the whole purpose of, of, of these events happening. But, you know, I'm generally in favour of people talking, in favour of people coming together and, and trying to do at least something. I'd, I'd cast myself in, hopeful in that respect. Whether we actually keep our warming to within the one and a half degrees C necessary to preserve most life on Earth, ecosystems, etc., I am uh, increasingly sceptical that we'll be able to do that. And so even if we don't manage to, to curb our carbon emissions, we still need to come together to work out how to adapt and, uh, and in some cases even pay for um, these kinds of uh, the radical sorts of shifts in climate that are going to happen. That was Justin Bowie there talking with Dr. Simon Cook. Justin, he was um, pretty sceptical there about some of the perceived gains, gains or hopes from, from, from the last year's uh, COP meeting in Glasgow. In fact, he, he opened with a pretty long list of concerns. Well, what did you think? Was he a bit glass half empty or glass half full? Well, it was interesting because as you heard, uh, Dr. Cook was not necessarily against the idea of COP. He's not even too cynical about all of the world leaders going there. His main concern was essentially that we just didn't do enough. And this is often a common theme when it comes to climate change and when it comes to the climate crisis. And as we heard, this has only become more difficult in the past year. We are in the midst of an ongoing energy crisis. But one interesting thing that um, Dr. Cook said 
was this idea that we can't really divorce the climate crisis from the need to have energy security right now. The issue is that a lot of countries perhaps only really think in the short term. It's much harder to think in the longer term, especially when you're seeking election or when a problem is right at your doorstep. But it's interesting that we had so much fanfare and a lot of excitement ahead of Glasgow last year. There was a lot of hope that a lot of good would come from this. You know, I suppose the Scottish and UK governments themselves will both still talk up the conference. They'll say it was a success. So it's interesting to hear an expert on the ground, so to speak, that just seems to kind of very much disagree with that. Yeah, he would, he was, it was very interesting as well to hear his thoughts on um, the uncomfortable nature of having to rely on our global transport network to, to actually study the environmental problems that that's in his field of of uh, specialty. Nicola Sturgeon was obviously in Egypt. She's back now. What's what's the Scottish government saying about COP twenty seven? Sort of the you know the next stage. Well, obviously in Scotland we've taken slightly a slightly different tack to the UK government and what they're wanting to do in England. The SNP still want to push ahead with renewables. They very much want to phase out fossil fuel development. So I suppose in that regard, they are trying to put a positive spin on this. It was a big thing for this event to come to Glasgow. It was pretty, when you, when you consider the sheer number of people who were here from Joe Biden to Emmanuel Macron, you know, leaders from across, across the globe, they want to portray Glasgow last year as a really important event that's now been built upon this year. And Egypt has a chance to then further what was achieved in Glasgow. But again, it's interesting that when you look beneath the spin, it's not really as simple as that. And that legacy is perhaps a lot more complicated. Yeah, well, you mentioned they want to phase out fossil fuels. But of course, on the other hand, um, there's a fairly large part of the economy that relies heavily on oil and gas. And, you know, sometimes can be quite equivocal about whether or not we should have further exploration while we can and uh, or, or just cut it right now as... Um, some environmental campaigners would, would rather. I mean, the First Minister was away from Holyrood this week, obviously, to be in Egypt, but also because she was having um, her first face-to-face meeting with Rishi Sunak since he became Prime Minister. They were in Blackpool for the British-Irish Council's latest gathering, where Northern Ireland was, was a bit more centre stage as well as energy. Rachel Amory caught up with Alex Cole-Hamilton at the end of the question session in Holyrood. Hello, it's Rachel here, and I'm in Holyrood with Andy at the moment. Hello there. Yeah, we've been sitting watching First Minister's questions this week. Um, John Swinney was in the hot seat for a change. Nicola Sturgeon is away meeting with Rishi Sunak instead. And a lot of it was about strikes and a few other topics, hot topics of the week too. But it was actually a point at the very end of the First Minister's questions session that kind of drew our our eye a bit. This was Alex Cole Hamilton, the leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats, bringing up something about a statement that's been said quite a lot over the past few years, hasn't it? Yeah, and, and, and it's um, about energy policy in a week where, of course, we're talking about climate change and the nationwide push to lower emissions. Um, and and it's a policy which inevitably leads everyone to think about things like wind power and renewables. And, of course, Scotland prides itself on having a lot of wind. Um, it can be a bad thing and a good thing. But it seems like we might be basing a lot of our policies on, on a, a figure which, well someone might call fake news. 
Yeah, we take a listen to what it was he said in the chamber. Yesterday, it was revealed by the think tank These Islands that a key government statistic is false. It is a claim which will be familiar to every single MSP in this chamber, that Scotland has 25% of Europe's potential offshore wind resource. Over the years, this has been referenced countless times, both inside and outside this parliament, by SNP ministers and MSPs. In this chamber, they include successive environment secretaries, First Minister Alex Salmond and Deputy First Minister John Swinney. This matters because the, the Scottish Government has put this claim at the heart of the debates around Scotland's energy security on independence and on meeting our climate target. We had to catch up with Alex after to get a little bit more on this one. This statistic, it's got implications for, for the climate as well as independence and the, the Scottish economy as well. How, how far reaching are these implications going to be? Well, the implications of the research undertaken by these islands give the lie to a statistic that has been used by the SNP and their allies for the better part of a decade. If your um, listeners will recall Alex Salmond referring to Scotland's offshore wind potential as being the Saudi Arabia of renewable technology. Well, it turns out that was all mints. It was based on um, cobbled together research papers from as far back as 1993, when the science was in its infancy, which didn't look at um, a, a full definition of Europe when talking about percentages and, and did excluded places like Finland and Norway, which are the main powerhouses of European wind generation. Um, and it's But it's a, a statistic that's been trotted out ever since by um, by SNP parliamentarians and the like. Um, it's really significant because it suggests that, um, first of all, the economic prospectus um, for renewable are renewable possibilities and the money it could bring into, especially in independent Scotland, are flawed. Um, and it also suggests that actually Scotland really doesn't have necessarily in its back pocket the tools to not just offset our own climate targets, but the um, countries around us, as we've always said it would. I mean, this line has been repeated by the SNP and others in good faith. Do you think it's just been the case of people have said it because they believed it was true? It's been repeated so often over the last 10 years um, that you can see how it's just become received wisdom in the SNP. Um, I doubt that people down the food chain who trot this out um, have actually looked under the hood underneath all of this and, and realised that it's it's nonsense feels like a good statistic to back up their arguments. Um, that's not how you do politics, though, especially on something so serious. When you're talking about um, encouraging companies to invest in Scotland, when you're pointing to our credentials on the world stage, as Nicola Sturgeon has tried to do this week in Sharm el-Sheikh, you can't do so on a false prospectus, which multiplies by five the renewable potential of Scotland's offshore assets. That's that's just a given. Um, I, it, I think there was papers in the 90s which sort of hinted, uh, again, you know, this is seems to have been cobbled together from papers that suggested that that's what it could be, but it didn't look at Norway and Finland and things like that. Um, and, and actually the reality has turned out to be far less. But, you know, it serves their purpose. And, and as with all things, connect, particularly connected to the economic case for independence or trying to make the SNP's economic, uh, sorry, environmental credentials look sound, um, it's a statistic that has served them well. But it needs to stop serving them because it's 
utterly false. Um, and and facts matter. Re- reality matters, particularly when you're talking about climate science or economic modelling for an independent Scotland. We can't just allow politicians to trot out statistics that are half-baked from nearly 15 years ago. How much do you think Scotland's national energy strategy needs to be changed on the back of this new information? Well, that's a really good question. Um, and actually, that leads me on to another problem. Um, and that is that what the SNP are doing around our offshore wind strategy right now. Um, the Scotland sale, which you might have heard about, um, which happened last year, around this time last year, which netted um, something like 70 miles, well, several tens of millions of pounds, um, was actually sold at a pittance. I mean, they, they were selling, auctioning off square kilometres of seabed for with a um, an auction price cap of £100,000 per square kilometre. Um, considering that the similar auctions in England and Wales uh, offshore have netted something four or five times that, it, it beggars belief that the Scottish government decided to, through Crown Estate Scotland, to impose such a cap. Um, that shows that the SNP's strategy, their industrial strategy and their energy strategy are completely all over the place. Um, I say that because this was all done at once as well. We we auctioned off the lion's share of our seabed for energy renewable, renewable energy production at a pittance and all at the same time. Why is that important? Well, because of phasing. There's no phasing to the contracts that have been um, awarded, which means that there'll be a glut of producers who are scrabbling around to try and find engineers and manufacturers to produce these wind farms. Um, and then that means um, they'll be lost to Scotland. If, we, if we'd said, look, we're going to let this happen at a, a steady a steady rate, we could have built onshore infrastructure um, an industrial base to grow these wind farms in Scotland, jobs to Scotland, whereas none of them will go to Scotland now because all the manufacturing will be done in sites and, and yards that already exist. The engineers will be taken and, and brought in from um, around the world who know how to do this because we've not trained our workforce. Um, so we're going to miss out on massive opportunity. And so I don't think that the fact that the um, the SNP have been found out with this fallacy that we somehow have quarter of the Europe's wind generation potential, I don't think that in particular changes our strategy. But I hope it shines a light on the fact that the SNP and the Green Party, let's remember the Green Party in this as well. Lorna Slater trotted out this 25% statistic just this week in the Edinburgh Evening News. They know absolutely nothing about what they're doing here. And that is scary because, yes, renewables are a massive ingredient for progress and prosperity in this country. Um, but we're just not taking advantage of it. And when we try to take advantage of it, we've absolutely, um, well, we ju- it's created a dumpster fire. There's just no coming back from this. You can't, you can only sell the seabed once. And, um, and by so doing, the SNP and their green counterparts have sold the family silver. We got through about 50 minutes before that of um, the other huge story, which is um, causing the SNP a lot of problems, strikes. It was mainly nursing strikes that the First Minister's questions focused on, both the Conservatives and the Labour Party. That's what they wanted to very much concentrate on. Um, and very much saying, you know, we can't blame the pandemic, we can't blame Brexit because problems with NHS staffing have been going on for, for 10 years now. But the SNP, they were very much keen to say, you know, this is because we're struggling to recruit from overseas, we're struggling with Brexit problems and obviously the pandemic as well. Yeah, Well, it looks like every single time that the, the opposition think they've got one over on the Scottish government here, someone like John Swinney, who's in the hot seat this time, can they just quite easily point to some of the big problems that are 
hounding the Conservatives at Westminster. He pointed out it's a bit rich coming up with um, tax and spend policies when just a feels like a couple of minutes ago they were saying you should follow the wonderful uh, lead set by Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng. But uh, then even an Asarwar for Labour, when he stood up and started talking about strikes and the implications that this has for the SNP, um, Keir Starmer's words were thrown back in, in Anas's face. Yes, came um, last weekend, wasn't it? Um, Keir Starmer said that um, we need to stop recruiting so many NHS staff from overseas which definitely caused a lot of raised eyebrows, particularly up here in Scotland, I think, as well, didn't it? Yeah, and I, it looked to me like Anas was pretty angry. He, he was, yes. Yeah, um, having the the feet pulled from under him a little bit, I think, in his in his line of argument. And, of course, John Swinney just um, puts on his big, loud John Swinney voice and points back at them and saying, oh, you know, you can't you can't come here with your, hypocr- your hypocrisy when uh, actually we're being, you know, pushed into this with one hand tied behind our back. Well, you're going to hear more from us directly at Holyrood from some of the backbenchers and um, the committee members and some government ministers as well. So we'll have more on that for in the coming weeks of the Stushy. It's time now for a look at the big stories that we've been covering beyond Parliament. Callum Ross is here with Justin and Adele Merson. Um, I mentioned earlier we'd be looking at the Scottish child abuse inquiry. Um, am I right in thinking, Callum, this is this really important process has maybe fallen off the radar a wee bit nationally? I think that is right, Andy. In some ways it's not surprising because this inquiry, if you remember, was actually established in 2015. It began hearing evidence in 2017, but it was supposed to be kind of done and dusted by, by 2019. It was a kind of four-year deadline was initially uh, put on it, and now it's... Uh, going to carry on as long as the evidence keeps coming I think basically it's now into its seventh phase um, with an eighth to come next year so yeah it's uh, it's maybe doesn't get the the profile it got in the early days I, I remember going along near the start and and uh, I went back uh, on Wednesday and, and yesterday this week because uh, there was going to be evidence um, from kind of uh, the most senior social Work bosses at Aberdeen, Fife, and and Dundee um, City Council, uh, the local authorities there, and it's all about kind of foster care services. That's that's the phase of the inquiry yeah. we're in just now. And what what did you hear from the from dipping back into the evidence there? I mean, I, I know that there was some some pretty harrowing evidence in amongst all the paperwork and. Um, lessons to be learned from the people who are in charge who you know who weren't who weren't around at the time when a lot of these um problems were being swept under the carpet really that that's right i mean uh, despite its kind of duration the, the evidence being discussed uh, hasn't really lost any of of its impact it is quite um distressing at times um you know most of it was from the sort of 1970s and 80s really but but you know that's not that long ago uh, and some no. some went up to the kind of 1990s. Uh, several kind of major themes kind of emerged um, over the two days I was there. I mean, I, th- I think this has probably been a, a theme throughout the inquiry, but just this idea that the voice of of these children in care, you know, that their voices weren't being heard. Yeah. Um, There's a kind of culture of believing the adults um, more than the children. Also, the kind of voices of social workers who, you know, the few that were raising concerns, they were also um, yeah. being ignored. 
a lack of, in terms of foster care, you know, at the time, a lack of kind of proper assessment of the homes and the families that, that were going to be fostering children um, and sort of ongoing scrutiny after the, the kids had been moved there, overcrowding, you know, far too many kids going into one home and, and you know, homes and families yeah. that didn't have the capacity. And there are also kind of issues with the, the local authorities in general in terms of the way the records they'd kept uh, their files in relation to some of these children some of them didn't seem to have a full grasp of of what um what allegations had been made in relation to which kids over yeah. the time but you know like you said most of these these social work bosses given evidence weren't around when most of this abuse happened but they did say there were there were still lessons um to be learned uh even if you know the cultures and structures have changed massively in terms of fostering over the decades yeah you, you pulled out one case in particular, which uh, anyone interested in, in reading more about this can, can go and visit uh, the Courier website in particular. This is a case, really tragic case of um, a two-year-old girl, Alexina Kelby, um, who died. And you've been speaking with her brother. That That's right, yeah. I'm not, I'm not long off the phone, Andy, to um, Peter Kelby, who's been campaigning um Campaigning for decades, really, I think, um, to to find out the truth about what happened um, to his sister. I mean, it was mentioned at the inquiry that that the family had never received uh, an apology uh, from Dundee City Council or its kind of predecessor, you know, Tayside Regional Council, about uh, Alexina's um, death. You know, she did die in care, and there has been evidence kind of emerged recently that you know there's you know she, there are photographic evidence that indicates that that she was she was um assaulted um so yeah i mean he's calling for a a, a public statement from the council uh, uh, uh apologizing um so yeah read more about that uh, uh on the the courier and press and journal yeah absolutely um and it's definitely an inquiry that we're going to keep our eyes a lot more firmly focused on adele you've been um looking at another weighty subject as well so looking at the 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 prospects that await refugees asylum seekers who are finding themselves in scotland yeah i uh, started off by looking at the some of the sort of lengthy stays that um some asylum seekers in aberdeen are facing in sort of a hotel accommodation in the city it came off the back of stephen flynn aberdeen south mp he sort of raised the plight of the what he said was the sort of exact figures but the very many people that are waiting um you know about a year for applications to be processed and this all comes in the wider context of the uk government coming under a lot of pressure for overcrowding at the the Manston Immigration Processing Centre, which is in Kent. Um, so there's it's definitely a sort of um it's a very current topic and um the kind of background to it was the Home Office awarded contracts to three private companies across the UK to manage asylum accommodation and um the short-term solution is that asylum seekers will go into hotels in most cases while they're waiting for their applications to be processed. I mean, it's not really an ideal situation for anyone because for the asylum seekers, I guess it's a element of you're just living in limbo for quite a while. And then it's it's not cheap, to be honest. Um, I got some stats given which said uh it's more than currently more than thirty-seven thousand asylum seekers in hotels and that's costing uk taxpayers 5.6 million a year so obviously they're keen to 
I guess both for the asylum seekers' sake, but also for financial from a financial perspective to to get a more uh, long term situation. Um, Robert Jenrick, the immigration minister, he was saying the government wants to move away from this kind of contingency plan of using hotels and to speed up the process and see whether individuals are either granted asylum or removed from the country. So they they do want to see that sped up, and um, they also want to look at. Didn't give a great deal of detail, but you said um, potentially providing some larger sites that would provide decent but basic accommodation um, as another potential solution to this problem. Yeah, and you can you can read, of course, more on that from the Press and Journal's website. And our courier colleagues are also looking at the, the extent of this across the patch as well. And there's plenty more coming on that, particularly just the sheer scale of government contracts now that appear to be just block booking hotels left, right and centre as well. I mean, there's going to be impact on all kinds of parts of, uh, of, of our economy for these reasons. That is it for this week. Thanks to Callum Ross, Justin Bowie, Rachel Amory and Adele Merson. Also guests, Dr Simon Cook, Alex Cole-Hamilton, producer Marvin McIntyre and to you for listening. We'll be back next week with more, but until then, and even after then, pick up or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed. The Stushi is the politics podcast from DC Thompson, designed to help you understand the implications of what happens in Holyrood, Westminster and our communities so that you can be better briefed. Don't miss an episode by following The Stushi today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. And if you know folks like you who want to understand politics in Scotland a little better, suggest they tune in or follow Stushy Scott on Twitter and Facebook. And stay even more up to date on local and Scottish news by subscribing to The Courier or Press and Journal, where you can get one month of unlimited access for just £1. Check the episode notes for details and terms.